following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we are continuing on and looking at the book of Exodus, looking at redemption's journey, seeing how God is moving faithfully with his people and guiding his people and directing them. Uh, We saw Uh, The great story of the Red Sea, of God parting the Red Sea and of destroying the enemies of Israel, uh, of taking this band of of refugees, of former slaves who were worn out after generations of service, who were tired and were moving on, and he led them to a place of absolute distress. He put them on the edge of a sea that they couldn't cross. And there was no other exit except to head back. And then he put hot on their heels the arrogance of Egypt and Pharaoh and all of his mechanized units of chariots and of men and of spears and of swords and all moving in tandem to come and to crush God's people. And it was a scene that truly is epic and one that I so wish could be done better in Hollywood to show what really happened uh, at that point. But basically God said, folks, I got this. Just sit and be quiet, and I'm going to take care of you. And it said that the pillar of fire and smoke moved from in front of the people to behind them, formed their rear guard, covered their exposed flank so that they were, were protected, And then God sent his messenger Moses, the prophet, out and he outstretched his hand with the staff over uh, the Red Sea. And by his power, it divided in half and it was dry ground. It wasn't soaky, smelly, pluff mud, but dry ground for the people to walk across uh, and to be safe. And you can just imagine what it had to be like to go through there and to see with fascination Uh, what was going on, and the winds blowing, and families coming, and faith of some strong and some weak, all the million or so of the Israelites moving through there and getting to the other side of the Red Sea. And as they stood on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, they weren't out of danger yet in their minds. They were never in danger, quite honestly. But they, in their minds, were afraid because the Egyptians were moving through in the midst of their arrogance and their pride and their blind pursuit of what they wanted. They were coming after God's people. And Moses stretched out his hand again, and the seas covered them and destroyed every one of them to where there were even bodies strewn across the shore. Then what? What do you think would be the next thing to happen? Well, most likely you would say it would be a celebration. It would be a party like no other party that you've ever seen. The people were probably so fascinated and so amazed they were going to celebrate and do it. And that is exactly what happened. They threw the biggest worship service that had ever been thrown in the history of the entire world. A million of God's gathered people gathered together on the shores of the Red Sea with Moses, uh, their worship leader, their pastor, their prophet, uh, the one who was out in front of them leading the singing. And all of the people gathered in and singing because they didn't have to be convinced of the greatness of God. They just had to look behind them. They didn't have to wonder if God was for them and not against them because they just walked through a sea on dry ground 
And they saw all of their enemies destroyed utterly behind them. And they knew that they'd done absolutely nothing but complain. And yet God was faithful to them. And they worshipped Him with exuberance, with passion. They did something that is so foreign to so many of us. They sang. And later it says they danced. At least the women did. That Miriam, and she grabbed the tambourines and they danced. I can only imagine, it says that Miriam and all the women, that had to be hundreds of thousands of women dancing. My first thought was, where'd they get the tambourines? But they had them. Maybe they took them. Maybe that was part of the, the, you know, the stuff they took from, from Egypt. But they were there and they worshipped. And they celebrated God without concern of what anybody else thought. Because they knew this much about life before Yahweh. It's to be sung. It's not just to be lived. It's not just to be endured. It's not to be just analyzed. It is to be sung. That God comes into the lives of people and He gives them a song to sing. He gives them a song that makes their hearts come alive. That all of the gifts that he gives to us in this world are to bring us alive and to lead us to singing, even spontaneous singing. That's what happened here. The people of God sang one of the most beautiful hymns that's ever been written in all of creation. And Moses wrote it and the people sang it together. And this morning we're going to consider a few things about it. And you can already imagine, I'm going to tell you the end of the story first. I'm going to tell you the main application point first, so you can prepare yourself for it. You should have already gotten it by now. You want to know what it is? We're going to ask you to sing in a little bit. All right? Every one of you, men, did you hear me? We're going to sing. You monotone guys, you baritone you tenors, you women who can't carry a tune in a bucket, it doesn't matter who you are. Here's the homework assignment that we're going to practice together today. Sing. For when you see God and behold our God, it leads you spontaneously to sing praises to Him. So let's now first come to this great hymn of our faith. This is our hymn, by the way. This is our story that we sing. Let's pray first. Father, we ask now that you would bless this, the reading and the hearing of your word, that you would move in us by the power of your spirit, that it would incite within us a song that has to be expressed, sung and danced and hands raised and hands clapping together and feet moving all in the presence of the God who when he steps into creation, it blossoms and it sings and it shakes and tremors because its creator is there and its redeemer is come. Would we be no less than the rocks and the hills, but would we be a people that sings? So make your word come alive to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Still till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the very word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. We live in a day and an age where if we go five minutes without touching our Palm Pilot, our Palm Pilot, wow. <laughs> the funny thing about that is half the congregation went, yeah, yeah, I still have mine, hoping they'll make a comeback. And uh, good gracious, touching your phone and whatever else, that we're always looking for updates, we're looking for the next video, we're, we're incredibly visual now, we have to see things and we have to hear them. This story happened within an age of oral tradition. This story happened within a time, and for centuries, thousands of years, where the people would gather around 
And you would sit, if you were a young Hebrew, at the feet of your grandfather or of your grandmother. And you would say, tell me the great stories. Tell me the stories again of how God brought our grandparents and great-grands out of Egypt. Would you tell us that story again? And you can imagine the fascination of a child. Tell us the part about the sea. Tell us the part about how awesome God was and the spectacle that he made of his power and of his keeping our people safe and of destroying those mean Egyptians. Tell us that story. And the kids would have sat around and the adults and the teenagers and all the generations sat around as the patriarch would have regaled them with the stories of God's faithfulness. And then they would have sung a song of praise to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They would respond to everything that happened. The good news of a day, they would come and respond in song. Because that's how they understood life. That life was to be sung. We've come to a day, into an age, where the world sings to us. Where they entertain us. Where we look for others to do it. And we've lost something within the church. We've lost something within our own spiritual vitality that what is to happen is that we are to rehearse and we're to see these stories and the great redemption that we have been given in Christ Jesus and in and of our own hearts, we're to come and to sing. And if we can't think of our own new words, then we have this wonderful thing right here to go, oh, I can sing this. I can do this, or you pick up an old hymnal, or you find uh, a CD uh, that has some actually good music on it that is deep and theologically correct and leads you into expressing what is true. You see, the people sang. And when you come in view of God's great redemption, it leads you to do one thing, and that's to sing. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk and look just for a moment at several different components. First thing that we're going to look at is that we sing because of God. We sing because of God. The next thing is we're going to look and say that we sing about God. And then finally, we sing to God. We sing because of God. Because of his great acts of redemption, because of his great act of salvation, it generates within us a song to sing, that we sing because of him, that we sing about him. Interesting, very different from all the other ancient songs and all the songs about today. Songs today focus on what? The person singing. We sing about ourselves, we sing about our accomplishments, we sing about all of these things. But the Christian sings about God, the characteristics of God. And then finally, we sing to an audience of God himself that we've been given the privilege, the incredible privilege of being invited into the throne room of the King of Kings to our creator and to express to him through song what we think and believe, how we feel in that. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And then we're going to end with giving you 
and me, giving us an opportunity to sing together. That wonderful hymn, which I hope will be stuck in your minds for the rest of the day. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. He will reign forever and ever. Amen. And we'll sing. So first, we sing because of God. We sing because of God, because of his great salvation. And it is first this, it is God's salvation. We've hit this and hit this, but I want to hit it one more time. It's God's salvation. And that's why we sing. We sing because he has saved us, that we identify ourselves with the people of Israel stuck on the banks of the Red Sea with no hope in and of ourselves, that we were lost, we were in bondage, we were in slavery to sin and death. And just like the people of Israel, we have no escape. But God shows up on the scene and he says this, just be quiet. Just, as a friend of mine would do to his children, Just stand and watch as I unfurl my banner, as I roll up my sleeve on my right arm and I destroy your enemies. Just stand and watch, for you bring absolutely nothing to the equation except your lostness. So just stand and watch God redeem you. Watch him save you. That's why we begin to sing. Because we see this salvation that God has wrought. That he is the God of our salvation. That it is his work of working everything together to secure our victory. It is the Lord's triumph for us. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Because of the redemption that you have given to us. We see this and we have a reason to sing that it is God's salvation. And that it is God's redeeming for himself a people. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That you have purchased the people. God was saying to the people of Israel, I had to redeem you. You were in bondage. I had to reacquire you. I had to break the bonds that were over you. And he did that for the people there. And that was the reason that they sang with their salvation and redemption. And for us, if those people standing on those shores being freed from a temporal power in Egypt would worship and celebrate like this. How much more us today? Who by Christ's suffering, his payment, freed us not from Egyptians, not from political powers, but freed us from our ultimate enemy of sin and death. And that he's come and he's done that on our behalf. That he's redeemed us and that he had to pay a price. We talked about earlier. That's how all of this comes together and mixes together so well. This beautiful tapestry of the gospel. There had to be a price paid for your redemption. Somebody had to pay. And God said, I'm going to make my son pay for you. I'm going to make Christ pay for you. Because you can't possibly pay on your own. You're utterly lost. Utterly impoverished. Utterly in bondage unless I show up on the scene and do it for you. That's the beauty of our salvation. That God has done this for us. 
The fact of the matter is the scripture describes humanity in not glowing terms. Dead, enmity, alien, foreigner, not wanting anything to do with God. But God came and saved us. Let's do the words of Philip Ryken, who preached a wonderful sermon on this text and said, The history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, this drama is actually a musical. It is impossible, it is impossible even to conceive of biblical Christianity without songs of praise. Christianity is a singing religion. A Christian who doesn't sing is a contradiction in terms. If salvation were merely a reward for services rendered on our part to God, if he were simply giving us our due, quid pro quo, we're, we're, we've earned it, so salvation is ours by right. It's our, it's our dessert. If that were true, well, then we might strut and preen in self-congratulatory pride, but we would never sing praises. Salvation would be ours by right. We would have earned it. We've no one to thank but ourselves for it. But if God has broken in when we could not save ourselves, if Jesus Christ has obeyed the law of God that we could never hope to keep and paid our penalty at the cross, if there at Calvary it really is finished and there's nothing for us to do, well then what is left for us as we receive the mercy and grace of God as a sheer gift? but to sing praise with gratitude and joy and hearts melting in wonder that we should be so beloved. If you don't sing and worship God with a whole heart, it means you have underestimated God's work within the process of salvation and overestimated yours. For a heart that doesn't sing, for a believer who doesn't sing, it means that you don't think God's done all that much for you and you think you've done quite a bit for yourself. But if salvation is of the Lord, then we stand. And we can do nothing else but to worship and to praise Him because He is the one who has saved us, redeemed us, bought us with a price, and is leading us to be with him. Don't have time to unpack that, but look at the language within this in verses 13 and 15 and elsewhere, where it says he's leading us to his holy mountain. It's not just God coming to us, but it's God bringing us to himself. It's an entirely new theme that's brought into scripture, and it's flushed out within all of the rest of the, of the scriptures, which say God is bringing us to himself. He's not just redeeming us and leaving us alone, but he's leading you to himself. And therefore, we have songs to sing. So we sing, the church, the Christian sings because of God. The next thing we see is the Christian sings about God. We sing about Him. That's why it's important to know His characteristics that are given within even this passage. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. It's His glory. We look and we sing about His glory. We sing about His otherness. We sing about His character, His very nature, which is so different from ours. We sing and we say, we sing of the characteristic of God because He's different from us. We want to know God personally. We're going to look at that in a second. But you also have to have involved in your theology a right understanding of the transcendence of God that He blows away every category that you ever could have understood about Him. That He is greater than your greatest thought. And you look up at him and you're just amazed at him. Do you view God in that way? 
that you just behold him and you're amazed at his glory and his weightiness and the otherness of who he is. And so we sing songs about God and his glory, his transcendence, but we also sing about this God who is personal to us. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. And He has become my salvation. He is the God of my fathers. Do you see the personal now? We do sing of His transcendence and His holiness and His others, but we also sing about the fact that He's mine. There is a personal connection that I have with Him. He is my Father in heaven. He is my God and my salvation. So we sing about the personal qualities of who God is. We sing about His character of keeping His covenant to us. That He said that He is my Father's God, verse 2, and that He is, loves us with a steadfast, a covenant love in verse 13. That God, we sing about His faithfulness to us. We sing about the fact that the promises that He made, He will complete and He will answer. That He will fulfill That we sing about that faithfulness in a world where very few things you can count on. Tried to get something done on, uh, it was a warranty situation. I had my phone and I had one of those things on it, you know, a life proof case that was supposed to be, you can't break it. And if you break it, we'll replace your phone. I dropped it from three feet off the back of my couch. I called life proof and I said, I dropped the phone while it was in the case. uh, And you promised in your warranty that you're going to give me a new phone. And they said, can you prove that it was on there? It's like, well, no, I didn't videotape it while it was going down. It broke, and it was in there. They said, sorry. It's like, but you promised. Well, Mr. McCutcheon, if you'd like to purchase another life-proof case, it's like, oh, no, actually, I don't. But the fact was, promises are broken constantly. Many of you come from broken homes, broken promises, broken things in this world. And God, one of the things that we sing to is the faithfulness of God to his promises. His characteristic that he is a warrior God. Verses 3 to 10 and 12 and 14 and 16. The Lord is a man of war. That likes to be, we like to kind of put that down a little bit in today's more modern mind. We don't like that language. We don't understand it. But the fact of the matter is that we are at war. That there is a battle being waged for the hearts and the souls of people, of yours. Parents, if you're praying for your children, you want and need to believe that God is a warrior fighting for their hearts. You look at your spouse and you want to know that God is a powerful warrior fighting for your spouse, fighting for your marriage, fighting for the things that you value in this world that are of him. You want to know that God is this kind of God, that he's a warrior and that when he marches out that there is no enemy that can stand in front of him. We don't sing those hymns anymore. We want to be nicer to the world around us, more palatable. But you know what you need to hear deep down within your soul when you know that there's an enemy that's like a lion prowling, trying to devour you? You need to know that your God is a warrior and that he will never lose the battle. It's already won. And that when he unfurls his banner and he rides out on that battlefield, The enemies cower. Look at what happened to Canaan. They weren't even in Canaan yet. 
The Moabites were quiet. The Philistines were trembling in their shoes. Everybody was terrified because they knew something about Israel now. Israel had a God who was a warrior. And he was going to come and win the day. How many of you need to know that God is a warrior? And right very closely with that, you need to know that God is powerful. And that's what we sing about. Sing about his power and his might. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Verse 6. We sing about that. How many of you are facing something in your life that you need to know that God is more powerful than it? A couple of you? Think the rest of you and you'll come up with something. Because it doesn't have to be massive. It can simply be this. Lord, I know that you're more powerful than my own heart that so easily wants to wander from you. Lord, I want to know that you're more powerful than my doubts. Lord, I want to know that you're more powerful than this culture which is trying to destroy my children. And I know that you're more powerful than that. And when you, un- when you pull back your sleeve, it is a mighty arm. And it is in behalf of my beloved. Some of you are facing incredible devastation in your life of death. You know what you need to know? That your God is more powerful than the grave. That we have a God who said this about our Savior Christ. He might have been carried into a tomb, but he walked out three days later. And he said to death, oh, death, where's your sting? You thought you could keep me in the bounds of the grave. And I walked out of my own accord. The only way that you could hold me for three days is because I allowed you to. And you can speak that way to death now. For here's what I know about death. It's going at a 100% clip. Every, it wins one out of one times with every individual in the world. And so all of us are going to die. All of us are going to face a grave. But the one thing that we need to know is this, that there is a Savior who is more powerful than the grave. And he says, you believe in me and I will give you life, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that I'm going to be there for you. And I am powerful and mighty to save. And we sing to that characteristic of his power and of his might. This song sings of God's uniqueness. Look at what they said there. Basically, the Israelites were going, we've been in Egypt. And we've seen a bunch of gods in Egypt. For 400 years, we've seen a bunch of gods. And then here's what they said about their gods. Who's a god like you? Who is this god like you who would actually come And would dwell among his people. Who's a God who says that I'll do everything on your behalf and you don't have to do anything? Who is a God like you who says that it's by faith in my son, not by your works, that you're saved? Who is a God like you who says that I will save people from every tribe and every nation? I'm this kind of very unique God. And that it's through Jesus Christ. And instead of dumbing down the uniqueness of the God we serve, shouldn't we highlight it and celebrate it in our songs? We celebrate the uniqueness of God. We celebrate the fact that God is a loving God. You redeemed with your faithful love. Verse 13. Do you ever wonder if God loves you? Look at a cross. It's empty. People have asked me over the years, why do we as Protestants not have Christ on the cross like a Roman Catholic would? And the answer is this, because the cross is empty. And there's no need for another sacrifice. Once for all, paid. Christ paid it all for us. And you look at that, and if you ever question whether God loves you, look at Christ. And he said, I can't show you in any better way. I gave you my beloved. 
I gave you the thing I cherish the most, my son, for you. Oh, celebrate his love. And the final characteristic that we'll talk about here this morning is he's eternal. That you will reign forever and ever. Verse 18. We live in a country where governments change every four years and eight years. That we look and we say, hey, there's a new law enacted. And then a few years later, somebody else comes in and says, I don't like that law. We're going to change that law. We're going to change this. And we're going to change that. And we're going to keep modifying and keep doing. And we don't know what we can trust. But here's something we know about our God. He reigns forever and ever. That he is seated on his throne and that he's never going to be moved. And that he's there for you right now. Do you hear that today? I don't know what's happened in your life. But I know for many of you, you try to put your foot down and it feels like you're stamping down on a trampoline or you're in quicksand and you're moving and you just can't seem to get any stability and you wonder what in the world is happening. And I want you to hear this today. No matter what you're facing today, and this is not some little pithy platitude to give you, I want you to hear this today. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're facing, God is on His throne he will not be moved. No matter what. No matter who has failed you in the past. No matter who has disappointed you or left you or abandoned you or done whatever. Or no matter what you're facing and what you're concerned about in the future. Know this. God is faithful. And if you want to talk about that more, let's talk about it some more. That he's on his throne. I don't know what's going to happen in my marriage with Lisa tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen with my boys. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know this, and it gets me out of bed every single day, and it lets me fall asleep every single night. My God, who loves me and gave me his only son, is seated on a throne. And whether I wake up in this life or the life to come, he'll still be there. Whether I fail him or something tragic happens, he is still faithful to me. And I can rest. And I can sing of that. And then as we finish, it's a pretty simple end. We sing because of God. We sing about God and his characteristics. And we sing to God. He is your audience. It's not me. It's not to impress me. It's not to impress Matt and the team up here. But we sing to God. That he is the audience. That he is the one that we worship and we celebrate and we sing. I'll go ahead and invite the team to come on back up. And while I'm saying that, I'll say this. You show me a person within the church, the body of Christ, who doesn't sing. And I'll show you a person who has a spiritual problem. Because you were either, as I said earlier, you were either underestimating what God has done on your behalf or you are overestimating what you've done. But if you don't sing, it's showing something inside isn't wired right. So what I'm going to give us to do right now is an opportunity to worship. Because here's what I want you to see. Not a Red Sea. Not Egyptian warriors. But I want you to see a cross and past that cross, a throne room, and in that throne room, a lion and a lamb who are sitting there and he's saying, I have 
overcome. Come in to my presence. You know, the, it's a very interesting thing. You're the only people who get invited to look at God without covering your eyes. Every other created being that's flying around him is covering their faces. God says, behold me. Behold my beauty. And be changed in my presence. And sing. Let's stand and sing.